Welcome to the Together for Good podcast brought to you by Bethany Lutheran Church in Cherry Hills Village, Colorado. Today's episode is a Bible study. I put this together for all of us uh, so that we could study this gospel passage in preparation for the sermon that I'm going to deliver on Sunday. So this is Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 35 that I'll be teaching you about and really going into depth on. And then this Sunday, June 6th, I'll be preaching and this will be my sermon text for sure. Hopefully you're able to uh, come to church here at Bethany in person or watch on our live stream through BethanyLive.org. Or, of course, if you um, want to, know that I always post the sermon audio next week. So maybe you could listen to this Bible study podcast, and then if you've put it off long enough, the sermon audio will also be up. But let's get into it now. This is a really interesting passage. Um, There's a lot to talk about and some cool cool ways of reading the scriptures that we learn through the process. So let's get into it. Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. Hi, everybody. This is a Bible study, and our Bible study today is looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. This is the assigned gospel reading for Sunday, June the 6th. And so you'll get to hear a sermon all about this in just a couple of days. Well, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, but I wanted to give you the deep dive and all the information because it's a really cool text. And there's a lot of stuff in here that you might miss or that I might not get to include within my sermon. And I've gotten some feedback, people telling me that they kind of enjoy these deep dive Bible studies, something that they can listen to on their ride into work uh, to center them and ground them in God's word for the day. So we're going to be doing this from time to time when I am able to work it within my schedule. I'm going to bring you some of these Bible studies. Um, They help me prepare for my sermon better, and they're just kind of fun to put together and have on file uh, for future use as well. So again, If you want to open your Bible, uh, feel free, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. If you're driving, don't open your Bible. My gosh, what are you thinking? (laughs) So let's get right to it. I'm going to give you some background information, and then we'll kind of go verse by verse. That's how we typically do these. In the Gospel of Mark, what you need to know as we listen to any story from this Gospel, Mark's Gospel is the shortest of all four. And that's important because Mark's Gospel also has this real sense of immediacy to it. In fact, the word immediately appears all the time in Mark's gospel. Jesus did this, and then immediately he did that, and then immediately he did this. And the idea is, among scholars too, that Mark was probably trying to get this story written down quickly himself. He was starting to realize, or his community, they were starting to realize that the stories that they had been telling about Jesus, the oral tradition that they had, where they would sit down and share the stories that they knew about Jesus— that they needed to write it down so that the next generation could also share in these stories. And they were thinking that Jesus was maybe going to return during their lifetime. And so that's why they didn't write it down at first. But then as they were nearing the end of their life, they immediately decided to write down the stories so that future generations could also read them, which is why we have Mark's gospel today. But within the sense of immediacy, and this compressed time frame that seems to underlie the situation at place when Mark was writing down his gospel, what happens is that we often get a whole bunch of stories sandwiched and smashed together. And that's exactly what this little passage 
is doing today as well. There's there's really three stories taking place in this Mark 3 chapter or verse 20 through 35. And the other part where this gets really interesting is that in Mark's gospel and the other gospels as well, there's this form of writing. It's called the chiastic form. I have definitely talked about this in Bible studies and probably even on the podcast before too, uh, because it's something you really need to know if you're going to study scripture. The chiastic form, as you can kind of guess, it has this Hebrew undertones to it. Chiastic. It was a way that rabbis would often structure their teachings within the chiastic form. And and just the idea, it sounds fancy and confusing, but what it really means is that the meaning is in the middle. The meaning is in the middle. And so you sandwich stories around one another, but the middle, the filling, the peanut butter and jelly between the two pieces of bread, that's where the meaning is. And when you can kind of dig at the the meaning that is in the middle, it helps you better understand the pieces that are happening on either side of it. And so this exists all over the place within the scriptures, uh, but we see it today. We have three little stories that get sandwiched together, and what we really need to do is look at the middle story in order to better understand the point that Mark and that Jesus is trying to make in the first part and the last part. I hope that all makes sense. Uh, we'll just get into it, and hopefully it'll, it'll kind of become clear as we go through this carefully and slowly. So let's start. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. I'll read it to you. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. So this is only the third chapter in Mark's gospel. We're still kind of close to the beginning, but a lot has happened already. And what we're hearing is that what's happened is that Jesus's popularity has really grown. Jesus is returning to his home. That's an important point too. Don't forget that little detail. Jesus is going back to his home and there are people there to meet him. And and in fact, there are so many people there that he gets penned in at his own house. They're, they're, they're compressed and they're so vast are the crowds that he and the disciples can't even eat. That's how crowded his house would have been. And so this word home, it doesn't mean his hometown. It means his literal home. And so we can imagine Jesus in one of those small houses, whatever a house looked like way back in first century Palestine. And Jesus is there and he can't even leave his house. No one can come in and no one can leave because there are so many people who are just clamoring to see him. He's kind of trapped in his home. Let's move along. You'll see why these details are important. Verse 21. When Jesus' family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying he has gone out of his mind. So Jesus is at his home and now we hear that members of his family are coming to take him away by force. The word restrain here really has, um, depending on how you translate it in the original Greek, restraining is something that you would do for a criminal. That's where this word is used. So they're, they're coming to take him away by force. Jesus' own family believes that he's a danger to the society and that he's not well. And so they're trying to come and get Jesus, but this is where those details from that first verse are so important. They can't get to him because Jesus is penned in. There's so many people. He's so popular that he is stuck in this house. And so even though his family wants to come, members of his family want to come and take him away because they think he's a danger, they're not able to restrain him or capture him because the crowds are so large. Keep going. Here comes verse 22. 
And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So scribes from Jerusalem, this is a special distinction. Jerusalem is the heart of the Jewish faith. It's the epicenter. It's kind of like Rome is for Catholics today. You know, you've got the Vatican and the Pope and all the bishops who live there. So if a scribe from Jerusalem is coming down, this is a person of some renown and some authority. They serve in Jerusalem. And so they are making allegations against Jesus. So, so, so things are very serious for Jesus. Yes, his popularity has grown, but scribes from Jerusalem and his own family are concerned and think he's possessed by the devil, it sounds like. And so it's a very persuasive accusation that's been going around about Jesus, that he's possessed and that he's serving Satan. It's, it's, so, uh, it's gotten so much attention and so much uh, a weight to it, so much momentum to it, that scribes from Jerusalem are coming to Jesus' hometown to investigate. And so at this time, it seems as if there would have been a real formal accusation uh, uh, that was kind of in the works amongst them. And and if you were at that time accused of being a servant of Satan, it would have resulted in your execution or your banishment for sure. And so these scribes from Jerusalem, they're really coming to carry out a very serious, um, a very serious allegation against Jesus. Um, and even Jesus's family is on his side. But once again, we also get the sense that perhaps it was those crowds that were preventing the scribes from Jerusalem also from restraining, from capturing Jesus that day. Keep going. Verse 23. And Jesus called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan, he says. Again, it's likely that the scribes from Jerusalem were not able to capture Jesus, like I said, because of the crowds. And they, like Jesus's family, remain on the outside of this whole scene. And within Mark's gospel, outsider is a real distinction. There's a lot of moments where Mark mentions the outsiders, and it very much is a person who is separate and apart from Jesus. And so here, it's also metaphorical as well as physical. Yes, his family and the scribes are outside, but they're also outside of really understanding what Jesus is all about and what he's trying to do. And Jesus is clearly, though, aware of all that's going on because he starts to speak about these accusations. They probably weren't able to get inside to make the accusations, as we've discussed, and yet Jesus seems to understand what's happening and what, you know, the talk, the, the scuttlebutt, as they say, that's been going around. And so what's interesting, though, is that Jesus doesn't directly confront the accusations. He's clearly aware of them, but he doesn't confront them directly. Instead, he speaks in parables. This is a rhetorical device that kind of turns the tables on his accusers. And it ends up, as we'll see, showing that any intelligent person would recognize just how absurd their accusation actually is. So I want to pause here because this is kind of the first really interesting little nugget of information that we as Christians and people of faith today can gain from the way that Jesus responds. Jesus is aware of the accusations against him, but he doesn't combat the accusations directly. There's a very old piece of wisdom from the 4th century Desert Fathers 
that is similar to this idea. And it says, do not confront the demons directly. The idea was that if you didn't combat the demons directly, you could call forth light and attention in, in other ways. That by just affirming and mentioning the goodness that you saw in the world, that would undo whatever the demons were up to. And so it's really interesting that Jesus kind of models that for us here. He speaks in parables and kind of turns the accusation on its head. And it's just that subtle reminder that one of the ways that we can confront the struggles in our life is in an indirect manner by focusing on our blessings, by focusing on gratitude, by recentering ourselves in the word of God and the promises that God has made to us. All of that can have the positive impact of undoing our accusers, of undoing whatever struggles we might be facing. It doesn't always work, of course. It's, you know, every situation is different. But I just find this whole approach fascinating and really incredible, um, the way that it kind of mirrors one another, both what the Desert Fathers said, as well as the way that Jesus approaches and combats his accusers from Jerusalem and his accusers within his own family. I want to add, too, though, about this whole verse 23. Up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has already cast out demons. And so the readers of the gospel have seen the ways that the demons address Jesus. They call him son of God. And so in other words, it's really ironic. The demons seem to have a better understanding of who Jesus is than his own families. The, the demons seem to better understand what's going on here than the scribes from Jerusalem which is part of Mark's point, is that some of these, you know, just because they're members of Jesus's family doesn't mean they have it all figured out. Just because there are scribes from Jerusalem doesn't mean they have it all figured out. Scholars believe that at this time that Mark was writing his gospel, there might have been some conflict between Mark's community and the community of James. The community of James, of course, J James is Jesus's brother. And so this whole passage, scholars wonder if it might have been partially a subtle dig by Mark at the James community, saying to th about them, you know, like, just because you are part of Jesus's family doesn't mean your way of doing it is all 100% correct. Remember, even Jesus's family was totally blind at first about what Jesus was up to and what was going on. Similarly, uh, many of the early Christians continued to have struggles with Jerusalem, with Jewish scribes and Jewish authorities who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so this also is part of what Mark is highlighting by sharing this story in the way that he does. Hey, remember the scribes from Jerusalem came down and they didn't have it all figured out either. They thought Jesus was an agent of Satan originally. And we all know that that's not true. You get the idea. This is the really incredible thing when you read the scriptures carefully and really dig into the details of it, of all these other little pieces that are going on between the lines, so they say. So let's keep going, though. Let's look at verse 24, 25, and 26 here. Jesus says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. So this is the quote-unquote parable that Jesus is telling. He's using some lines. These are proverbial phrases that would have been well known at that time. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. 
that's something that other people might have been saying at that point in time. And so Jesus is kind of using the language of the day and the logic of the day to just show how flawed the argument is that he's an agent of Satan. These people, right, the reason that Jesus is trapped in his house right now is because there are great crowds of people there. And those crowds of people are there because Jesus has started to become famous for all of the demons that he's been casting out. And so these stories are well known. This is the man who casts out demons. And so Jesus uses the common proverbial phrase, hey, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, ergo, why would you think I'm an agent of Satan? So he undoes everything in just a few short lines. All of the accusations from his family, from the scribes, he shows them to be very foolish. Let's move on to verse 27. Jesus continued, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. Jesus returns here to indirectly refute the accusations against him by sharing this proverbial phrase. A strong man can only be subdued by a stronger man, he says. In other words, if Jesus is casting out demons, then this shows that he's not an agent of Satan. But also, it in fact shows that he's stronger than Satan and that he's already at work destroying Satan's kingdom. So that little, yeah, that verse 27 is kind of interesting just as you think of the weight to those words about, you know, only a stronger man can tie up a strong man. Yeah, not only is Jesus not an agent of Satan, he's already at work subduing and tying up and destroying Satan's kingdom and bringing about a new kingdom. Let's keep going, verse 28 through 30. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. So this, these three verses is kind of that middle portion that I was talking about at the beginning of this whole Bible study. The first portion is the whole conversation that Jesus is having, the parables that he tells. But then here is the middle. And as we learned in the chiastic form, the meaning is in the middle. The passage shifts in this moment to Jesus making a statement about unforgivable sin. And so this passage has actually often been misquoted and misused. Jesus is making this statement directly against the scribes from Jerusalem who are working against Jesus's ministry. These scribes from Jerusalem who are not recognizing the spirit of God that is at work in Jesus's ministry. And so this is what Jesus is directly confronting. These verses often get misused nowadays and people say like, oh, you know, like you can be forgiven of anything, but if you create, you know, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then that's unforgivable. But what Jesus is really getting at, the, the reason that Jesus is saying that it's unforgivable is simply because the Holy Spirit is the agent by which sin is forgiven. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, we say in the Apostles' Creed. See, The the reason being, if you deny and cut yourself off from the Holy Spirit, then in turn, you're cutting yourself off from forgiveness as well, because the Holy Spirit is the one that mediates, makes forgiveness possible. The, The last phrase that Jesus adds in verse 30 that we just read shows that Jesus is specifically talking here about his family and the scribes who are accusing him of having an unclean spirit. Verse 30 said, 
right? That's that little rejoinder phrase, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. So all of what's going on here, right? They're not recognizing his family and the scribes. They're not recognizing the work that the spirit is doing. They don't get it. They think he has an unclean spirit. And so they're completely missing the work that Jesus is doing. And Jesus is trying to call them out on this. Listen, you're trying to stop me and say that I'm an agent of the devil, but I've shown logically why that can't be true. And here's why this should concern you, scribes and family members. Because if you don't recognize the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through me, if you don't understand this new thing that God is trying to bring about right here, right now in your midst, then you're going to miss out then you're going to be cut off from God and what God is trying to do in the world. It, it can't be forgiven because you will have turned your back on the very spirit of God. Jesus isn't concerned about his honor or his shame. He doesn't care about these rumors that are going around that the scribes and his family members are spreading. He's worried about the ways that people are undercutting the very mission of God. The mission that he is giving his life to. That's his goal. That's always his focus. And his family and the Jerusalem scribes, they're missing it. This is a common theme in Mark's gospel about the blindness of religious authorities. And here in these three verses that we just read, we see that theme played out again. And so again, the meaning is in the middle. What Jesus is most concerned about is people not getting on board with the kingdom of God mission that he's on and the ways that they're getting in his way. And not just that, you know, he's not upset that they're you know, accusing him uh, of being an agent of the devil. It's not about pride for him. It's about the fact that God is up to something new and he doesn't want anyone to miss out. All right. Whew, that's a lot, but the meaning's in the middle. We had to spend a lot of time on those verses. Let's keep going. Verse 31 through 32. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. Okay, we'll stop there. So this is the third part of this you know, threefold story that I was telling you about. Part one is Jesus being stuck in the room and the scribes coming and accusing him. Part two is Jesus saying, hey, don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. You're going to miss out on what God's up to. And then part three, we go back to his family. It's his mother and his brothers who are calling him out. And so this verse, right, it, it comes back to those details that we encountered in the beginning. It's Jesus's family, his, his mother and his brothers that are part of the group who doesn't seem to get what he's up to. Jesus's mothers and brothers maybe and most likely weren't a part of the original group that was looking to restrain and take Jesus away, but they're still his family. So you've, and so this little, these few verses I just read, it provides Jesus with a chance to explain what it really means to be family. And the detail about his family being outside, again, further underlines the sense that just because someone is family does not mean that they're on the inside and aligned with Jesus's mission. So his family come and they're standing outside, it says there in verse 31. And that's, again, Mark kind of setting up the fact that it's his family who is um, on intellectually and physically, metaphorically and physically on the outside looking in. 
They don't fully understand what Jesus is up to and what he's trying to do. And so then we get these last verses, which if we just read them normally, wouldn't make sense. But again, because we know the meaning is in the middle, we're going to put all these pieces together. Trust me. Verse 33. And Jesus replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus uses these sentences to redefine family. Family are those who are doing the will of God. They're those who understand that the Holy Spirit is at work within Jesus's mission and his ministry. They understand that God is doing a new thing and they want to be a part of it. That's what family is about. And so especially Mark includes this story and includes it in the way that he does because at that time in the first century, there would have been a ton of conflict with families. As this first generation of Christians tells, you know, their Jewish parents like, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus the Messiah. And the Jewish parents are like, wait a second, you can't do that. We're family. That would have been a very common experience in those days. This whole changing over from religious traditions to a new religious way. So there were many families that were split by the Christian movement. And so this whole story would have been really valuable um, for Christians to hear at that time when Mark was first writing it down, that, that they do still have family. Even if they're cut off from their previous family, to be family means to be aligned and connected with the will of God. To be family means to understand the way that the Holy Spirit is at work in Jesus's mission and ministry. These words here at the end about who family truly is, They seek to discredit those scribes from Jerusalem once again. Those that do the will of God are Jesus's family. Not the scribes with their important credentials. Not even family with blood relationships to point to. In fact, even family and scribes can be off base in their understanding of the world and the ways of God. So there you go. You see how all the pieces fit together when we carefully dissect them. The passage begins with mention of Jesus's family rejecting him, right? Trying to restrain him. And then it ends with Jesus redefining what it means to be family. In this chiastic form, the statement made in the middle is what brings illumination to the passage. Jesus says in the middle of the passage that the Holy Spirit is at work, not demonic forces. Jesus's family doesn't understand and is speaking against the ways of the Holy Spirit. And so they're not true family. True family, according to Jesus, are those who allow the Holy Spirit to work through them, just as the Spirit is working through Jesus. And as I said, Jesus says all of this stuff, not to condemn the scribes or the family members, but just because he wants everyone to get on board with this vision. So, wow, there's a lot in there. And I think just in terms of as we think about this whole passage for our lives today, it's to remember that Jesus wants everyone to get in on the program and and to realize and recognize that there's so much value in God's vision and hope for the world, that, that that's where true family can take place. When we're all on this mission together, it's something beautiful and it's something powerful and it's something important. Um, and, and again, to recognize what, how these words would have been so comforting to first century Christians who were struggling with these new realities in their life of family and faith. Um, but to then also be challenged to see the church as our family, to treat one another as our family 
and to treat our work as the family business, so to speak, to care about it just as much as we would our own blood relations. That's part of the calling um, that Jesus gives to us through these words in Mark's gospel. Hey, wow, that's a Bible study for you. There's a lot in there. Thanks for listening and following along. Like I said, I'm going to try and do these as often as I can fit them into my schedule. Don't worry, I'll still have a regular episode every week, but when I can add a Bible study along with it, I'll put these out later in the week as we get close to the Sundays when we're going to be hearing these passages preached on. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, everyone, and telling your friends about the podcast. We really appreciate it. Stay in peace.